Welcome to this episode of Rewired Podcast. I'm Bailey. And I'm Kelly. And today we're going to look at how The Wire compares to theater. Okay, exciting. So are we talking like just sort of standard Broadway theater? Uh, No, we're going to look at more two conventions that arose in theater and drama in the sort of early and mid 20th century, which are the theater of cruelty and the theater of the absurd. Okay, I'm excited. Okay, so tell me about the theater of cruelty. Okay, so first of all, when we have been discussing The Wire on this podcast, we've compared it to literature, we've compared it to television shows, and so we thought it might be fun to kind of look at theater conventions. So Theater of Cruelty was a school of thought that emerged after World War I, uh, very avant-garde by Antonin Artaud, um, and it was all about shocking the audience, uh, almost to the point of pessimism, and really unsettling the viewer with visceral impact. So if we go back to kind of our analysis of literature, like when we looked at McNulty under the sort of the the tragic hero, we're not talking about tragedy in the sense of normally like we think of tragedy. Similarly to this, are we thinking about cruelty in the sense of how we always think about cruelty or is it more of like sort of like a horror genre or something? Yeah, it's not cruelty in uh, the fact that cruelty is the subject matter. It's more a way of thinking about the way the piece impacts the viewer. Um, And we should be clear that theater of cruelty and theater of the absurd, which we'll get to shortly, uh, are far removed from realism. They're more surrealist genres. And that's not the wire. The wire has got a lot of realism, so we recognize that. We're talking more about um, ways to think about the narrative and how it's impacting uh, us, the audience. Interesting. And But some of the things that uh, Artaud, how do I say it? Artaud? Artaud? Artaud. Used was like imagery, lighting, sounds, which I think really is similar to The Wire in a lot of ways. Like, yes, the storyline quite literally can be difficult to watch, but there, I think David Simon used a lot of other things in The Wire that also made us uh, really focus in on the story in, in a different way. Yeah, and especially when it comes to shocking the audience through image. So the first scene of The Wire, what happens is that we are introduced to who's speaking by kind of the camera zooms over this puddle of blood. Um, And we can think about that as being the first example of kind of shocking the viewer with um, violence, I guess, but it's really um, just completely um, shocking to submerse the viewer in that right away. And there are some other tricks, too. Like, I'm thinking of the scene where um, McNulty brings Omar to the morgue to identify Brandon. Well, to see Brandon. Omar demands to see him. But the boys are there in the waiting room. And we never really see necessarily Omar's reaction to it. We just hear the scream of Omar. We see the boys react to that scream. Yes. And then it clips to security footage and you just kind of see their soccer ball rolling down the the hall in black and white. Yeah, that's a perfect example. So I'm going to read out here. um, I believe this is from... 
Encyclopedia Britannica, perhaps, but it says, the cruelty in Artaud's thesis was sensory. It exists in the work's capacity to shock and confront the audience, to go beyond words and connect with the emotions. He believed gesture and movement to be more powerful than text. Um, so what you just described mm-hmm. is a really good example of that. Definitely. And I guess, interestingly, this whole notion of confronting the audience and forcing them to confront these things, I guess in that time right after World War One, you said it was, when he sort of was, this was emerging, right? Yep. So historically at that time, there was a lot of sort of world issues that were needing to be faced. And in a similar way, when The Wire was emerging as sort of this pop culture thing, well, as we've talked about before, it wasn't even that m- that it was more of a cult following that didn't really have a big thing. But now we see it as the world needs to confront more and more issues. We see more and more resonance of the wire. Yeah. And so theater of cruelty coming out of World War One, uh, there was a lot of disillusionment, which is uh, a hallmark of the modernist period. But it's because there was this new type of warfare that the world had never seen before and just mass casualty on a level that again, the world had not seen. So thinking about The Wire, um, sort of coming at the heels of the war on drugs and uh, moving into the post 9-11 era, I think that those are comparable. Okay, so another hallmark of the theater of cruelty is the insufficiency of language, uh, which is this idea that language is insufficient to express trauma or feelings. And I think that that is really interesting because The Wire is well known for not using its language in a way that is easily accessible to the viewer. Right. And it's interesting actually to think about this too because I'm trying to think of clips that we can play on a podcast to describe this, but actually most of the clips that are coming to mind don't have much sort of sound that would be easily identifiable in a podcast. One of the other things that I'm thinking of is the scene where McNulty vomits in the garbage can hearing the tape of Kima getting shot. That's a really, really good example. Right? And we know we would never have been able to capture McNulty's feelings if he had said, oh, I feel so shitty, kind of because of the person that McNulty is. We know that he's not really an expressive man anyway, but he, his character would never show that. But by seeing him vomit in the trash can, we know that he's experiencing something that, that he's probably never experienced before. Yeah, so that's um, a good way of of thinking about it. And another perfect scene, I would say, is when Snoop goes to buy the nail gun. Mm. Because Snoop is hard to understand. Um, The words are not that clear to the viewer or to the person working at Home Depot. Right. Um, So let's watch that scene. I see you got the DeWalt cordless. Your nail gun, DeWalt 410. Yeah, the trouble is, we leave it in the trunk for a while. Need to step up and use the bitch. The battery don't hold up, you know? Yeah, cordless will do that. You might want to consider the powder-actuated tool. The Hilti DX460MX or the Simpson PTP. These two are my Cadillacs. Everything else on this board is second best, sorry to say. Are you contracting or just doing some work around the house? No, we work all over. Full time. No, we had about five jobs last month. At that rate, the cost of the powder-actuated guns justifies itself. You say powder? Powder. Like gunpowder. Yeah. 
The DX460 is fully automatic with a 27 caliber charge. Wood, concrete, steel to steel, she'll throw a fastener into anything. And for my money, she handles recoil better than the Simpson or the P3500. Now, you understand what I mean by recoil? Yeah, the kickback. I wish. That's right. 27 caliber, huh? Yeah, not large ballistically, but for driving nails, it's enough. Any more than that, you'd add to the recoil. Man, shit. I seen a tiny-ass 22 world nose drop a nigga plenty of days, man. Motherfuckers get up, man, you like a pinball. Whip your ass up. Big joints, though, big joints, man. Just break a bone, just say, fuck it. <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna go with this right here, man. How much I owe you? 6.69 plus tax. No, no, you, you just pay at the register. No, man, you go ahead and handle that for me, man. And keep the rest for your time. This is $800. So what, man? You earned that bump like a motherfucker, man. Keep that shit. That was a great scene. When we did our poll online recently of the top wire scenes, that one definitely came up a couple of times. Yes, great scene. Um, so I think it's fair to say that seasons kind of one to four are very much steeped in this idea of the theater of cruelty and viscerally impacting the viewer. And moving away from the conventions of drama at the time in shows like, you know, ER, which mm. even though... It had a sense of realism to it. It had, um, you know, the sort of dramatic arc that the viewer wants. It usually resolved its conflicts and, you know, quite different than what The Wire did. Definitely. Well, and that's something that is talked about in Jonathan Abrams' book, All the Pieces Matter, that in a lot of ways The Wire was doing something that hadn't been done before, that there was pieces left hanging, and it didn't, it didn't wrap everything up in the hour even like a Law & Order SVU episode, everything is quite tidy at the end of that episode. Right. Or like CSI. And we've talked about CSI in our first season of this podcast and how um, crime drama on television was quite different than what The Wire did. Yeah. Definitely. All right. So what... you We've talked about theater of cruelty. What is the theater of the absurd? So the theater of the absurd arose after theater of cruelty, so we can kind of think about post-World War II, and it was kind of much more um, playful in a way, but uh, the whole thesis of it was that um, the work would expose that human existence had no meaning or purpose, uh, communication breaks down, logical construction and argument gives way to irrational and illogical speech. And I'm reading a quote there. Okay, so when we talked about this, it's really, this really was sort of absurdity. Like, like not in the sense of like, you know, the tragic arc or whatever when we talked about it before. This really does mean like to the point of the absurd, truly. Yeah, and so, you know, the classic example is Waiting for Godot by Samuel Beckett, which is a play in which the two characters are, they spend the whole plot waiting for this Godot who never arrives, um, and it's kind of comical, but the point is, it, you know, in, in relation to The Wire is maybe that thing that is meant to come as the act of resolution doesn't exist. Oh, so they, they talk about that a fair amount in The Wire. It's also making me think of the movie Waiting for Guffman, that Christopher Guest movie, the fake documentary where they're yeah. all waiting for the theater critic. Great. 
Yeah, Maybe. well, and that is clearly um, an homage to right. Waiting for Gaff- or, sorry, waiting, waiting for Godot. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, they talk about that, um, for example, when Carver says, you can't call this shit a war, war's end. Yeah. You know, the resolution, the war on drugs never really does, does that war ever end? Yeah, and that, the end to that war is Godot. In, in some ways, it's, you know, the thing that they are waiting for, that we, the viewer, are waiting for, and it's not coming. And even at the end of season five, there's still no answer. We really, we see just sort of a cyclical nature, but nothing changes. You can't say that the police have done any work for the quote-unquote better. Right. You can't say that the drug war has gotten any safer. Yeah, and I think um, everyone talks about season five as being this terrible season because it lost that sense of realism. That's why I hate this season. Me too. Like, I just, I was watching it, and to me, the it, it did become so absurd to the point of even, I think what was the most difficult for me was that McNulty was always likable, even though he was a bit of a disaster of life, but you still kind of were rooting for McNulty, but Freeman was our touchstone of sense, of good sense. And in season five, we lose that, and he becomes unlikable. Yeah, and so I'll read a quote here about uh, Theater of the Absurd. It says, Plays within this group are absurd in that they focus not on logical acts, realistic occurrences, or traditional character development. They instead focus on human beings trapped in an incomprehensible world, subject to any occurrence, no matter how illogical. Okay. And I think McNulty is kind of trapped in the incomprehensible world of law enforcement and corruption and corrupt institutions. Well, and in a in a similar way, season five is very much about how, you know, Tommy Carcetti comes in as the new hope for Baltimore. He promises over time. He makes it clear that crime is going to be the issue that he takes on. But what ends up happening is he doesn't get paid his overtime and everything. So McNulty and Freeman invent this absurd serial killer who is, you know, of course, murdering homeless people. And Freeman is there to make it more, quote unquote, realistic. Right. With the biting. And and he actually, yeah, like takes McNulty's cockamamie idea and makes it more realistic. Yeah. And I mean, that's the, the irony of it. And... I think one of the most kind of absurdist scenes, which is comical, but a, a good comment on this style, is when we have um, Templeton talking to McNulty, and they're both talking about this phone call between the you know fake serial killer. McNulty knows that Templeton's lying, and it, you know they just kind of keep going back and forth and reinforcing mm-hmm. one another's lies, and I find that quite. Um, funny in a way, but I think that that is a really good example of this kind of absurdist convention. Definitely. Let's listen to that scene. He said he wanted people to know there'd be 12 bodies before he's finished. And he said, quote, I came to take 12. I said, uh, what happens after 12? He said, quote, I go somewhere else, unquote. Uh, I asked him about the bite marks. He said that they wanted him to bite, that they asked for that. He complained that the article made him sound like a pervert. Um, I asked him if he was angry at the men. He hung up. He called you on your cell phone? Why didn't he call the paper? Well, I was all over the city yesterday handing my cards out to homeless men. 
He probably got the number from a card. Shit, I might have handed him a card. I think this is the guy. I mean, Detective, a chill ran down my back. Yeah, but there's no way to know. I mean, if it's some other nut, we're gonna look like fools if we run any of this in print. Your cell phone caught the number. He dialed you. Yeah, I dialed it back. Uh, payphone on South Hanover near West Street. All right. What did he sound like? What do you mean? Well, you talk to people for a living. Did he sound black, white, younger, older, high-pitched voice or low? Uh, he sounded to me like a white guy. Not a deep voice, but calm, almost monotone. He sounded older, I would say 40s. Not a really young guy. Can I have your notebook? Whoa, whoa, you can't have his notes. This isn't a confidential source. It will invoke the Maryland Shield law, but uh, I'll type up a copy and give them to you. But the actual document is property of the Baltimore Sun. So type it up, like now. So you're saying this could be the killer? Can we talk off the record? The homicide unit received a phone call this morning from a payphone from the same neighborhood. And based on Scott's voice description and the use of the number 12, <clears throat> well, let's just say we need to find whoever it was made both those calls. He made another call? Detective, as a newsman, I'm inclined to include these details in our coverage if there's a credible chance the killer was really in contact with our reporter. Would doing so have any negative effect on your investigation? Actually, these calls are our best means of finding this guy. Another scene um, similar to this one that comes to mind for me is um, the scene where Lester is talking about getting the dentures and using the dentures to bite the homeless men to make those teeth marks. Yeah. And again, it, it's absurd. So I think what's difficult versus, well based on the analysis of absurdist plays, is that we have to then come to the thesis that life is meaningless. Yeah, and a lot of people sort of dismiss absurdist art as, you know, being silly or ridiculous or it doesn't make any sense. And maybe that's the way we all feel about season five of The Wire, but it may be but that that is what makes it relevant to the series. Right. And not to get political, but if I watched a play about an American president who wanted to build a physical wall between Mexico and the U.S., I would think it was an absurdist play. Yes. Yeah. Because it is truly the theater of the absurd. Absolutely. There is a, a good, you know, reflection of, of real life in absurdism. Yeah. And it's interesting because I wonder, you know, I'm thinking of the other seasons of The Wire, but I'm having a hard time thinking of other examples where there is this sort of touchstone of absurdism. It, I really can't think of anything, whereas in Breaking Bad, there are a few times throughout where they, I think they were doing the absurdist thing. I don't know. I didn't finish watching it. I know you didn't. But anyway, I'm just, I, I feel like, yeah, I can't think of any other times except for season five in The Wire where there was an absurdist theme. Um, I don't know. I mean, maybe Omar uh, mm. testifying and that back and forth with Levy, I think is a bit of a commentary, an absurdist commentary on, um, you know, this, exactly what he says, which is that they're both profiting off of the drug trade. Right. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, maybe Omar as a character is a bit outlandish. 
right? Like this, this gay gangster who walks around in his silk pajamas the streets of Baltimore to get Cheerios, Honey Nut Cheerios. Yeah. You know, and, and so there is, yeah, there is an element there. Well, actually, and this is, I guess this is also season five, but when Omar jumps off the balcony and survives... Um, and Snoop and Marlo and Chris and Michael cannot figure out how Omar could have jumped off this, you know, five or six story balcony and survived. That is also in many ways absurdist. That's, I remember watching that scene and thinking like, what are they going to do here? Like what are, how are they possibly going to make this make, how are they going to make me believe that this is something that happened? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, so I mean, I think it, it's not necessarily a one-to-one comparison between conventions of theater of cruelty or theater of the absurd and The Wire, but I think it is a useful way of looking at some of the um, conventions and styles of, of the show. Absolutely. Okay, so thanks for listening to this episode of Rewired Podcast. If you have examples of theater of cruelty or theater of the absurd that you think are present in The Wire, let us know. You can hit us up on Twitter at, at RewiredPodcast. Or you can email us, podcast.rewired at gmail.com. And we'll see you next time. Way, Way down, down in the, the hole. hole.